You're listening to Yes to Employment, a podcast series that seeks to improve competitive integrated employment outcomes for transition-aged youth and young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Today, Yes to Employment talks with the Yes Center's Sean Roy about something that's not discussed much. Systems change is often considered a subject for professionals and policymakers, but Sean talks about the importance of family members to remaking transition and employment systems for people with disabilities. As someone who has spent his career working in youth transition and as a sibling, Sean brings a variety of perspectives. Sean Roy, please introduce yourself for listeners. Tell us uh, what your role is with the Yes Center and how you came to work in the field of disability. Well, thank you, Donald. Um, yes, my name is Sean Roy, and I am a, a state liaison with the Youth Employment Solutions Center, uh, which is a, a partnership between TASH and my organization, the organization I work for, which is Transcend. Um, as a state liaison, uh, I am responsible for helping uh, Massachusetts and Kentucky, uh, who are two of the six states, uh, with their projects to be able to impact positively uh, youth employment outcomes and systems change uh, for those youth with uh, high support needs. So I have been uh, in this role for about two and a half years, uh, been at Transcend the same amount of time. Uh, before I came to Transcend, I was at an organization in Minneapolis called the Pacer Center. Uh, and Pacer is a relatively well-known, large advocacy organization nationally that focuses on issues of families of young people with disabilities. And so we were Minnesota's Parent Training and Information Center. And I spent 15 years there uh, coordinating projects and doing a lot of writing, doing a lot of presenting, and doing a great deal of uh, training of parents around the state on issues of uh, successfully transitioning from school to adulthood, uh, preparing for success in employment and post-secondary education, and really became uh, quite interested and passionate about involving families and informing families so they could play a role in the success of their uh, young people. Um, per, you know, personally, I come to this work uh, because I have a brother who has a developmental disability, and uh, it's just he and I. He's eight years my junior. Um, so I really do draw from a great deal of experience uh, watching my family and uh, uh, support my brother through various aspects of his life. And then just as a sibling, um, you know, taking over certain responsibilities and guidance and support uh, as he uh, makes his way through life. And I'm happy to report that he's, you know, employed and lives on his own and he's doing very, very well. So do you think that families are aware of what systems change is? Well, I think that's a great question. You know, the, the focus of uh, the podcast, our discussion today, is really talking about strategies to involve families in disability employment systems change, because that is the focus of our Yes Center technical assistance and the focus of the the state projects that we're working with is really to try to implement some type of systems change 
so we can improve the out employment outcomes for uh, young people with disabilities. Um, and this is really imp important work because we've not moved the needle on employment outcomes uh, for people with significant disabilities in many years. And so involving families, I think, is important. But do they know? Are they aware specifically of what systems change is? I would say yes and no. Um, families have been engaged in systems change and advocacy for probably over a hundred years in this country. Um, in fact, families are responsible for the majority of the advancements and advocating for many of the advancements that have impacted the lives uh, around um, education, around civil rights, around access and participation. Uh, many of those changes have been driven by families. And so families are aware of the idea that that systems are in place and that they can be changed. But when it comes to some of these formal efforts funded by the federal government and instituted by the states to look at collaboration and impact uh, systems change, I don't think they're as well schooled in those types of pieces. And um, I think they feel it, though. They feel that there is, you know, a need to continue to advocate. Uh, they feel that there is, uh, you know, a reduction possibly in resources, but an increase in expectations. And, and they're wondering how to navigate some of that stuff. So formally, I would say no, they're not really aware of what systems change is. But I think, you know, on, on another level, they've been doing it for decades. Why are we talking about families if our goal is to improve employment opportunities for youth with disabilities? Well, that really is a, that really is a good question. Um, some people may have that same question is, you know, why is it important to talk about families when really what we're looking at is improving outcomes for young people and, and changing systems that impact those outcomes? But, you know, every single indicator of success, you know, adult success for youth with disabilities include families that are involved, uh, families that are informed. Um, if you take a look, for example, at things like the Guideposts for Success, which was put out by the National Collaborative on Workforce and Disability for Youth, you know, many years ago, um, family involvement is one of the five pillars of what young people need to be able to make the successful transition to adulthood. Now, very similar to the guideposts for success are the uh, National Technical Assistance uh, Center on Transition, uh, what they call the taxonomy areas. It's the, their five things that young people need to make the transition. And family engagement, family involvement is part of that as well. So on a research and, you know, the family engagement has really been seen as important. Uh, but on the local level, the state level, the systems level, I'm not sure that family engagement is always seen as important, but it really is critical. You know, the fact is that if you work with fam, work with young people, rather, you are working with families. Uh, you, uh, the old school way of thinking is that, um, you know, for teachers and service providers is that families you know, are, are a secondary part of the process. But what we've come to learn is that families are a very important part of the process and we need to engage families. 
if we want to improve outcomes, if we want to change systems. Um, research on family involvement, for example, states that uh, young people who have families who are involved in IEP meetings on a regular basis have better post-school employment outcomes. Young people who have families who have high expectations, who expect their son or daughter will be employed, tend to have better employment outcomes. So if the research points to that, I think it's important for us to honor that and, and to really figure out how do we involve families in being able to do this. As I mentioned earlier, families also drive change. So if you are a state system and you want to improve your uh, employment outcomes, involving families is a wonderful strategy to do so because families traditionally have been the ones to drive change. Families have a very uh, loud voice. Families have a, a voice that people listen to. And by people, I mean, you know, policymakers and funders and researchers and legislators. Uh, having that type of a voice on your side as an ally is very important. It's a wonderful strategy. Um, you know, we, we know that um, families can pose a challenge, and we're going to talk about some of those challenges, I think, a little bit later. But that's not something for us to focus on. We should focus on families as partners, uh, understanding that they can help us uh, really make these changes that we're looking for. So it's not uncommon that families are the voice for segregation, that they want their child to be in a special school. They want their child to be employed in among their own kind. And among a certain sector of people advocating for the rights of disabilities, the message is that families are the problem when it comes to helping youth and young adults with employment. What do you say to people who have that, that outlook? You know, Donald, I've heard that same thing uh, over and over again from uh, service providers and from teachers and from other advocates that, you know, when we're talking specifically about employment and we're talking specifically about inclusive employment, so paid competitive employment in the community, alongside you know people without disabilities uh, at a real job at minimum at least or prevailing wage um, sometimes families are apprehensive about exploring that and I think the problem is really based on a lack of communication a lack of infrastructure to support various options for people and very real, fears and questions that families have about their son or daughter's ability to work. So what often happens is that, you know, families of young people with significant disabilities, they are given a singular path. Uh, they're told from a very early age that because of the type of disability, uh, options are relatively limited when it comes to employment. Uh, even earlier on, they're not necessarily given a lot of positive messages about what their son or daughter might achieve as adults. So they go into the employment years with relatively low expectations and not a lot of positive messages about employment. 
So they are told that a segregated setting, for example, is the best setting. And then all of a sudden somebody else comes along and says, yeah, I know that's what you're told or I know that what that's what you have experienced. But we have a different deal for you. We have a different idea for you. And sometimes that idea is presented in such a way that really uh, makes families concerned. It gives them anxiety. It's not presented in such a way that it's an option or a choice or something that can gradually be worked on, but it's presented in such a way that it's kind of, you know, hurry up, we need to do this. And so, you know, the way that I always look at it is that the families are not the problem. The problem is that we have not communicated very well with families uh, what it is that we would like to see in terms of inclusive employment. We have not set that expectation early enough, you know, from a very early age, uh, of young people's families need to be hearing that employment is the expectation and employment in the community is the expectation. Um, you know, generally I find Donald that families want what is best for their son or daughters. That's just kind of universal and it doesn't always look the way that we want it to look. And again, I would point to those low expectations as the reason. So if we can get away from this idea of vilifying families that they are the problem and come at the issue more from a place of empathy and understanding and really try to try to understand the experience of families and having a young person with a significant disability and and understand the reasons for the decisions that they make and know that establishing relationships and open, honest communication and giving them positive messages about employment can really do um, go a long way towards dispelling uh, myths about, you know, benefits and concerns over vulnerability. You know, all of these things are, are real. If you are a parent of a young person with a disability and we're saying, hey, they can work in the community and this young person is vulnerable, um, we need to work with that family to show them that we can support that young person in the community at the level that the family is comfortable with. We need to respect the fact that they have worked hard to put services in place. And what we're asking them to do is disrupt that delicate balance that they've established. Uh, we need to understand that families are often or they often become weary of professionals. And another professional coming into their life, giving them a different idea or a different story, there might be fatigue you know, when it comes to that. So we just need to be patient that those ideas can, can really take hold eventually. And we need to provide them with the information so they can make choices and understand that those choices may take a little while um, or ultimately they may never make the choice that we would want them to make. But all we can do is 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 be understanding, give them the information, and set the expectation that competitive employment is really uh, the wave of the future. It's what we're looking for, and it's what a lot of these systems change projects are about. What What are some of the common missteps from systems trying to improve family engagement and outreach? Well, I would say the first common misstep would be not acknowledging the powerful role that families can play in uh, in in systems change. Uh, it's not 
that it makes it so it's not a priority then. Um, if we don't acknowledge the fact that families are an integral part of the lives of the people with disabilities that we are trying to impact. Uh, if we can understand that, we can focus attention in such a way that really honors um, the need and the power that families have. Um, you know, and by, I think most often what I see is that uh, systems and, and uh, state systems, what they want to do is they want to prescribe remedies and interventions to families. Um, they do not do always a nice job of, of involving families. They want to just say, for example, oh, we did this for families. We, we had this transition fair, but nobody showed up. We put out this website, but nobody's going to the website. We, you know, funded this advocacy, but very few people are calling. Well, the reason some of those things don't really work is because you have not involved families in the creation of it um, or understood what really is going to help families make the decision to be involved in some of those things. So um, I would say that you come at it from a place of involvement that, for example, if you have a steering committee on a project that you have uh, not only a few family members, but you have some family organizations, advocacy organizations there as well. Um, if you are going to uh, put out some information, have it vetted, reviewed by family members to see if they understand what is going on. Um, so there's a huge difference to me between just being very prescriptive, being very passive and hands-off, with your involvement and being more uh, involved with families along the way. Another thing that I tend to see is that family involvement doesn't live anywhere uh, within the systems that we're talking about. So uh, some places, you know, like the DD agencies in various states will have family outreach coordinators and sometimes schools have family engagement liaisons and sometimes um, the vocational rehabilitation programs might have people who have had some family training. But for the most part, I see that there's no point person responsible for and who understands family engagement. And if you don't have it live somewhere, if somebody's not responsible for it, then chances are it's not always going to happen to the level that it needs to happen. So having a point person, I think, is very important because it also gives it some legitimacy by having it be part of somebody's uh, job description, that they are going to spend this amount of time creating materials for families and conducting listening sessions and making sure that materials get reviewed. You know, that is a, is a great thing. But I don't see that happening very often. Um, in general, I, I, again, I go back to my original point of if it's not really embraced, if, if the people that are working in various systems and in systems change don't really at their heart believe that family engagement is important, then what you run into is, is just kind of a do we have to mentality. Do we have to do this? I'm busy. Is, you know, is there somebody else that can do this? Are we sure that this is important? And what we, what we should be striving for is understanding that we really need to do it. Uh, as we mentioned earlier in, in the questions, you know, family engagement 
can help systems do a better job of serving young people with disabilities. Uh, and if we embrace families as partners, uh, we can we can do that. But I don't see systems always embracing families as partners. They seem to view families as kind of a secondary concern. And I think that is really problematic. Um, and, you know, ultimately, effective family engagement takes relationship building with families. And I'm not sure, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of people out there that are really good at it, and a lot of people out there that embrace it. But I don't know if it has permeated to the full extent that it needs to in really understanding families, building relationships with families, being able to communicate with families. Um, that is a skill. And that is kind of a misstep that I see oftentimes is that the, the communication isn't always respectful and it isn't always productive. Again, it's passive and hands off. So those would be a couple of, of uh, kind of missteps that I would point to that I see quite often. So in your response to the previous question, you addressed early involvement of families and having dedicated personnel. What are some additional strategies that state systems can use to better engage families in their systems change efforts? Well, uh, there's there's a lot of ideas that I would have um, on that. The, one of the first ideas, and I think it's pretty simple, but we often forget about it, is just taking the opportunity to listen to families. And that involves creating a structured environment, a structured opportunity to be able to listen to the experiences and the concerns and the suggestions that families have over whatever it is that we're talking about. Uh, many years ago, I had the opportunity to facilitate some listening sessions for a state vocational rehabilitation project. And we were talking to families who had transition age youth in vocational rehabilitation. And it was an eye-opener. It was very valuable for the vocational rehabilitation program to be able to hear the feedback from these families. And it was not something that they had done before or not something that they had done very often. Um, it was quite easy to uh, partner with an advocacy organization to conduct listening sessions or focus groups um, to be able to establish that feedback loop. If you want to improve family engagement, you need to hear from the families that you want to engage. And the families will tell you, you know, this is, this is what works, this is what doesn't work, and here are my suggestions. And it can be very powerful. I think it's not too expensive to do. And it should be done on a regular basis. I think, you know, um, employment providers and developmental disability agencies and vocational rehabilitation and schools, they should have mechanisms to regularly listen and get feedback from families. Um, another way to effectively engage them is making sure that family members have seats on the various advisory uh, boards that are available out there. So the, um, you know, there's a, a developmental disabilities council. There is the state rehabilitation council. Um, even the specific projects that we are working with, the partnerships in employment projects have, uh, steering committees and larger consortia. You know, all of these should have family members on them. And what I see often is that 
the projects will engage family advocates like parent center folks or folks from the ARC or folks from, from uh, the mental health uh, world. And that's great. But also I think there just needs to be some family members, some people who are not connected to the world of disability, being able to look at these things through a different lens and being able to advise and, and support and lend suggestions. Um, you know, I, I think that there is an infrastructure in almost every state to provide advocacy and training to families. Uh, there's parent training and information centers. There are, again, chapters of ARC and, and Down Syndrome Society and chapters of, um, chapters of TASH, chapters of, of various groups that have a charge to inform families when it comes to various things around disability. Um, so I would think that supporting those types of activities would be very important for any state that wants to engage families in systems change. I um, am from Minnesota and I was lucky enough to be involved in some parent workshops that were a result of a collaboration between uh, a state agency and a county Develop, uh, dis developmental disability agency and an employment provider and multiple advocacy organizations. It was the first of its kind in our state, um, and it was supported by uh, the state to be able to do these workshops around the state of Minnesota. And I thought it was such a great example of understanding the need for accurate information and training um, and it, it really gave us a great opportunity to collaborate amongst each other, too. So supporting advocacy and training is, is very important. I'm also a big believer that you can't expect people to do something that they haven't been trained to do. And there is not a lot of professional capacity building available through to uh, educators and voc rehab staff, employment staff, state staff around engaging families. So we just can't assume that people know the foundations for effective family engagement. We need to be able to provide some capacity building to do that. I think what's encouraging is that in our um, current environment, I am seeing a lot of the state systems and federal uh, agencies and local providers are really starting to embrace the idea of family engagement. In fact, I've done a lot of training recently on the subject and I'm getting a lot of phone calls to do a lot more training. And I really hope that all of these, uh, all of these areas are starting to recognize that, um, family engagement is something that deserves a staff training, staff capacity focus and that this idea kind of takes hold because if we have our, uh, our disability, uh, professionals, really rooted in, in solid family engagement, we are going to be able to engage families, understand families, uh, solicit feedback from families in a much better way. I would say on a broader sense, there are some wonderful tools out there that you can use to begin family engagement. Um, I know that charting the life course out of the University of Missouri, Kansas City has become a very popular person-centered planning tool and a way that you can work with families around setting goals and understanding the impact of services and diversifying supports. So charting the life course has, has really become something that I really am a strong believer in.
Also, too, out of uh, the University of Kansas, they've put together a curriculum called FEAT, F-E-A-T, which stands for Family Employment Awareness Training. And if you Googled FEAT, uh, capital letters, uh, one of the first things that pops up, and it's a wonderful parent training model specific to helping families navigate and prepare for employment. So there's good stuff out there to utilize. There's parent centers. Again, there's TASH. There's the ARCs. Um, there's the DD councils that are starting to get interested in all of this stuff. I think if we utilize some of these strategies, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but if we utilize some of these strategies and some of the wonderful tools and the organizations that are out there, we can really build momentum around improving, engaging families, not only around systems change, but around um, around being involved and improving employment outcomes. So we've discussed how, fa- how to involve families at the highest level of systems change, but what about on the ground? What are some ways local employment professionals and schools can engage families to improve employment opportunities for youth and young adults? I think this is probably one of the more important focus areas because at the local level, at the individual level, is where engagement is often happening or not happening. Uh, You can have a lot of the broader tools and the broader understandings, but if the boots on the ground professional does not have the capacity to uh, engage families around high expectations and employment. Uh, it just is not going to work. And so some of the, I, uh, this is the, the focus of a lot of the work that I do is, is kind of the local level capacity building. And I do have some thoughts around this. Um, first of all, I think that uh, employment professionals in schools need to start early and root all of their own efforts in engaging families around employment in the idea of high expectations. So we're starting to recognize more and more the impact of low expectations on the decisions that families make on behalf of their son or daughters regarding employment. I mentioned earlier about the negative messaging that families receive. And it's no wonder that sometimes families don't have the highest of expectations around employment. So if we are able to give families positive messages and clearly communicate the goal, which is community-based employment, from a very early age, I think that we would get off on the right foot. We wouldn't be springing an idea on families after they already have an established idea. We would be saying from kindergarten, eventually your son or daughter is going to be employed regardless of what type of disability they have. Now, high expectations are are difficult because they're not just rooted in the families. Um, We've all run into professionals who don't always have the highest of expectations of what people with disabilities can achieve. And so it's important that we elevate the expectations of families as well as elevate the expectations of professionals to be able to clearly communicate to families. I mentioned the power of relationships a little bit earlier. And, you know, ultimately we are talking about families and we're talking about their children. And in the eyes of families, their kids are the best thing that they've ever done. 
It's the thing that they worry about the most. And I see a lot of professionals who don't convey a real sense of understanding and a sense of caring about these young people. So if you're a family member and you have somebody working with your son or daughter who doesn't seem to know the son or daughter very well, it doesn't seem to understand their disability or understand their strengths or what makes them awesome, then families are going to be kind of apprehensive about listening to that person. On the flip side, I have seen professionals that have built such powerful relationships with families that they were able to navigate apprehensions and questions and really forge a partnership that benefited the student a great deal. So building relationships would be another strategy. Oftentimes, you know, families don't see their son or daughter as employees. They have trouble envisioning work as a reality, especially if, if the young person has high support needs. So we can help families kind of steer away from viewing their son or daughter in a disability lens and steer them more towards talking about the positives of it. Um, when I do parent workshops, for example, I ask families, what is your son or daughter's greatest skill and attribute? And every single family in attendance always has an answer to this question. And whenever they answer the question, they always have a big smile on their face because somebody is finally asking a question about their son or daughter that isn't rooted in IEPs or disability or what they can't do, rooted about really what they can do. And if we start that conversation with families based on what the son or daughter is capable of, that will help the family see that employment is a possibility. I think another thing that we are, are really compelled to do is to help families reimagine the role that services, formal paid services, will play in the lives of their son or daughter. I worry that we are creating uh, an environment where families are coming to expect that this whole array of paid services will be available for their son or daughter. And that really is the only planning that is needed. And if they access vocational rehabilitation or the DD services for employment supports and they don't kick in right away or they're not successful, then families might just go, oh, never mind. Okay, I guess employment isn't possible. We need to relay to families that families can play a big role in supporting young people in employment success and that they may not always get the services and supports, especially if they live in an area where waiting lists exists or resources are low, um, that we can, we can start building more of a holistic view of supporting people that isn't just based on formalized services. You know, if we're going to come at families with the idea of paid competitive employment in the community, we need to understand that not every person is going to be employed for a full 40 hours. So what are we going to propose or how are we going to support families to be able to have something for the rest of the time? For the rest of the day, can we structure some meaningful uh, services and and supports that are rooted in what the person wants to do. I'd say hobbies. I'd say maybe auditing a class at the college or volunteering. Um, it's important because I think a lot a lot of families are apprehensive 
about employment because they say, well, on one hand, uh, my son or daughter goes to this center and they have, uh, they have her for this amount of time. And that allows me to go to work and it allows me to do what I need to do. So now you're suggesting that they be employed in the community. How are we going to fill up the rest of the time so I can do what I need to do? And that really requires some planning with the families uh, and partnering with the families to figure out what the rest of the day might look like. Um, we talked about staff training. We talked about listening. Both of those are very important on the local level as well. And I would, I would end with uh, the need for quality benefits counseling. So all around the country, when I do work around family engagement, a very common theme that I hear is that families are apprehensive about exploring employment because they are worried about what the impact will be on their son or daughter's social security benefits. And I always say that uh, we don't want families ever to make employment decisions based on bad information on Social Security. So a lot of families believe that if you have a job, you're going to lose your Social Security. If you have a job, you're going to lose your medical. And we know that that's not necessarily the case, but we've not provided good benefits counseling. So partnering with local uh, certified uh, work incentives counselors or CWICs or uh, work incentive planning and uh, ad administration um, WIPA projects. Every state has them. Uh, we can provide great benefits counseling so families can really make good decisions uh, on the employment future and not decisions based on bad information. For listeners who are really hearing your message, what advice would you give to families? How can they become involved in improving employment opportunities for all? Well, first and foremost, you know, my message to families is that um, it's their responsibility to become involved. Uh, it being involved in, in not only the lives of their son or daughters, but on a larger scale, being involved in improving the lives of all people with disabilities. Uh, families are such a crucial voice in that historically that it's it really is a responsibility that you would hope that they would embrace and and take, you know, take seriously. They need to know, families need to know that they have a voice and that they can drive change. Uh, in fact, it really is the one of the few things that have driven change is the voice of families that have demanded and asked for better conditions, better education opportunities, better programs. Um, you know, if, if we can re-empower families to be able to uh, speak truth to power or to be able to be willing to testify, to be willing to tell their stories. You know, that is the most powerful thing that families have is their stories. Um, I have been to, or, you know, legislative hearings on the state level where families have have come in and told about the impacts of the programs in question. And really it has been amazing. And I'm convinced on several occasions have, you know, saved a lot of very valuable supports and funding mechanisms for people in various states. I think serving again on uh, advisory councils and boards and uh, various uh, 
kind of entities of that nature is very important. Uh, I, I know that we're all busy. I know that it's intimidating for families to be able to do that, but we need the voice of families on the uh, boards and councils that are making decisions regarding uh, funding and the and policy. We need the voice of families on those. And, and one of the things I think that states can do is they can facilitate that. They can help families become a little bit more comfortable with that responsibility, and they can really involve families um, in that process, uh, which is important. But then you need families who are going to be willing to do that. We need families of young people. We need families of transition age youth. We need families whose uh, uh, son or daughter might be in their 40s or 50s because aging and disability is, is going to become an issue. Um, so participating in advisory boards and councils is very important. And while doing so, giving testimony and being involved, really asking families not to be afraid to ask questions and to raise concerns. Um, and, you know, it's it may seem, for example, that, you know, you run into a brick wall or asking questions or raising concerns is, is not going to do any good. But if you do so in the right manner, if you give, for example, uh, public comment at a state rehabilitation council meeting, uh, that goes on the matter of the public record. And the more that we have the voice of families heard, these concerns raised, the key questions asked, the better we are going to be able to construct some services and supports that really make sense. Um, you know, I, I families uh, have a lot of information coming at them. I've heard it being referred to as like drinking from a fire hose. So it's not always that we don't have enough information for families. It's just that families have a tough time sifting through the information. But it is important that families be informed about not only their son or daughter's disability and their son or daughter's IEP, uh, their son or daughter's uh, services and what's available, but also about some other strategies to be able to support in the community without formal services, uh, about what's happening with the services on the state and federal level. You know, how do certain decisions impact because if families know uh, and are informed, they can really be a partner in helping uh, guide some of the change that is needed. You know, ultimately, um, ultimately, it is just important for families to be involved in any way that they can, all the way uh, from the smallest levels, which is being involved in their, the lives of their son or daughter, making sure that when they talk to their son or daughter that the expectation of employment is set, uh, being involved in the IEP process in schools um, and, and attending listening sessions and uh, returning surveys, all the way to being a member of boards and councils and, and giving testimony when asked. Those are all things that families can do because we need the voice of families to be able to be successful in our systems change efforts and ultimately successful in improving employment outcomes for the people that we're working with. Sean, this podcast can sometimes be a little inside baseball. Thanks for talking to us today about the importance of family participation. 
Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do this, Donald. It's something that I'm passionate about. It's something that I know um, Tash and Transcend is passionate about. I've been very encouraged uh, about what the partnerships and employment states are doing around family engagement. And I would be happy to speak with anybody at any time regarding some of the things that I've talked about. Superb. Thank you. You've been listening to Yes to Employment, a podcast that seeks to improve competitive integrated employment outcomes for transitioned-aged youth and young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. For more about Yes to Employment, including show notes, links to the resources discussed, a complete transcript, and a schedule of episodes, visit www.yestoemployment.org podcast. You can subscribe through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app to have the series delivered automatically to your device so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rating on iTunes. Ratings will help us get the series in front of more listeners. Yes to Employment is a production of the Youth Employment Solutions Center, the National Training and Technical Assistance Center that serves as a hub of information and expertise for the Partnerships and Employment, or PIE, state projects. The YES Center is a collaboration of TASH and Transcend. You can learn more about TASH at TASH.org and more about Transcend at Transcend.org. That's T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N dot org. You can receive updates from the YES Center on this podcast and our other activities by following us on Facebook or on Twitter at yes to employment Partnerships in Employment is a series of seed grants funded by the Administration on Community Living's Administration on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, made to states for the purpose of transforming state disability support systems to competitive integrated employment. AIDD is dedicated to ensuring that individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families are able to fully participate in and contribute to all aspects of community life in the United States and its territories. Music for Yes to Employment is an original composition and performance by Sonny Seferati, the co-director and autistic self-advocacy mentor at The Musical Autist. You can learn more about The Musical Autist at www.themusicalautist.org. Be sure to keep Yes to Employment on your list. We'll have another episode on competitive integrated employment for you in the near future. (laughs) 